Welcome to the Restaurant Boiler Room, Season 4, Episode 4. I'm your host, Rick Ormsby, Managing Director at Unbridled Capital. Today in the Boiler Room, I talk about the life cycle of a brand's turnaround efforts, from distressed to wildly successful and back to distressed. I also give an update on valuations as the unpredictable year progresses. Finally, I talk factors that could be leading us to a recession, but might create a favorable supply-demand scenario for sellers who keep producing strong EBITDA while M&A supply lessens. The Restaurant Boiler Room is a one-stop shop for multi-million dollar merger and acquisition activity and financial complexities affecting the franchise restaurant industry. We talk money, deals, valuations, and risk. Delivered to the front door of franchisees, private equity firms, family offices, large investors, and franchisors on a monthly basis. Feel free to find our content at Unbridled Capital's website at www.unbridledcapital.com. Now, let's enter the boiler room. Well, hey, glad to be back and to talk with you guys today. It's been a cold spring. I know I have no reason to complain down here in Florida, but for those of you who listen uh, and watch the the webinars too, man, I hope you're staying warm. It's uh, it's almost at the end of a of a of what what would amount to be, I think, a, a cold winter, unseasonably cold. So, uh, you know, it's interesting. It's time to kind of get back to conventions. So. I've been at the KFC convention uh, the last couple of weeks, and then I'm headed to the Popeye's convention and the Pizza Hut convention and going to see several clients and things on deal closings. And so I bet I'm like most other people who are starting to really kind of push the travel agenda again. Uh, You know, there's been a lot of snafus when it comes to traveling on planes, man, delays and and crazy cancellations and things. So stay safe out there and uh, keep your road rage at a minimum. But I hope to see some of you who listen in the next several, uh, you know, in the next several months at some of these conventions and kind of industry events. And if you if you think you're going to be someplace and you might be wanting to meet up with me at any point in time, thinking I might be there too, hit me up with an email or, or you know, you can always reach us through our website at unbridledcapital.com. Love to chat and catch up with you and talk about the franchise business at any point in time. A couple of uh, housekeeping things this morning I wanted to talk about. Like first, I don't know if I announced it before, but obviously Unbridled had an incredible year in 2021. We brought on another dealmaker on our team, a guy named Peter Fisher. And Peter is uh, comes to us. He, he's from Mississippi. Our company's virtual, so he works out of his home in Mississippi, north northern Mississippi. He uh, was a, an MBA and a CPA and worked in an accounting firm, then at a commercial banking company, and then for a Taco Bell franchisee for seven years. And so he'll be joining us as another dealmaker and, and kind of deal execution advisor on our team and has a specialty in, in lending and you know borrowing and structuring capital. So I'm kind of excited about that. I know he's going to be a good fit. And uh, you know I, th- I think it's just another platform for Unbridled to continue to grow and service our clients in new and unique ways and also create uh, more capacity as our business grows uh, over, th- over the next several years as well. So welcome Peter Fisher to the team if you haven't done so already. And uh, thanks a bunch for listening to that. Now, one other housekeeping item. I got kind of a cool idea here. And you all may think I'm crazy, but just follow me here for a minute. So you may know that our company, Unbridled Capital, was named after the 1990 Kentucky Derby winning horse, Unbridled. And just the background, Unbridled was the winner of the 116th Kentucky Derby. He was in the post number seven. And the horse came out of the gate in last place, like eating everyone's dirt, right? But he ends up winning in dramatic fashion at the end. And then 
he won the Breeders' Cup later that year too. But Unbridled's real legacy was that he sired, and I don't know the technical terminology, but he was a father and the grandfather of two Derby winners after him. One of which was Grindstone in 1996. He sired Grindstone, and then, um, and it's the only horse to have ever been the father and the grandfather of Kentucky Derby winning horses. So Unbridled was a very, I don't know, it was a good investment as a, you know, as a as an income producing asset, right? Uh, through his, through, through the horses that came after him. But okay. So the Kentucky image and the Kentucky Derby has always been a big deal for our, for our company. Right. And so I was kind of trying to think of a way to, to maybe do another thing with it this year and ongoing years and to do a little fundraiser. Because as you know, when we close deals, we try to, uh, we always, you know, give a donation, almost always give a donation. And usually we give a donation to the foundations or to the team members, you know, through the, through the foundations, uh, the team members and the brands whose deals we close. And we've been pretty good about that. And we've given away several hundred thousand dollars of, 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 of our proceeds and, you know, because I always use the mantra, I want to be a blessing because we've been blessed. Right. And so the charitable part of what we do is important to me and important to our company. And so I was just kind of think, how, how do I kind of use a Kentucky Derby in our name to kind of do something? So I thought, okay, here's going to be a plan. And so I encourage you, we're going to do something fun, which is in this year's Kentucky Derby, you know, unbridled in 1990 was in post number seven. So we don't know who, you know, Derby's the first Saturday in May. We don't know who's going to be in post number seven. It, it could be someone who's like the favorite or the long shot, right? But from here on out, I guess what, what I'm planning to do is if horse number seven in post number seven, you know, wins, we're going to give $10,000 away to charity, $5,000 if, if horse number seven places, $2,500 if it shows. And, and if it doesn't win place or show, we'll just, we'll give a thousand dollars, you know, uh, anyway. And we're going to give to the, um, to the foundation. that's really close to my heart here in Pensacola, but it's a national f- foundation called the blue angels foundation, whose mission is to honor our nation's heroes by seeking to resolve PTSD, to save lives and promote positive transitions for our w- wounded veterans and their families. Like I said, I live in the Pensacola area and the Blue Angels are headquartered here. And I think it's just a great way to, you know, uh, to support those who risk their lives to protect, you know, our wonderful country. And then they come back here to the, to the States. And it's a pretty, pretty kind of uh, abrupt thing when you get out of the military. For those of you who listen, who've been in the military, but just think if you're wounded. But even in normal situations, if you've been in the military, you know that kind of like, you kind of check out, you're discharged, and then it's kind of like a lot of the uh, your, your backdrop of your life is, cha- is changing. You know, the military cre- does a good job of creating like a family and a community for you. They take care of a lot of things and they keep you focused on the mission at hand. And when you go out into the real world uh, again and leave the military, you know, little things just start to become big deals because you have to adjust let alone um, those who are wounded and those who have PTSD from combat. So we're going to use that Blue Angels fund as our charitable contribution for this unbridled Kentucky Derby post number seven thing. If you have any interest in following it alongside uh, with us or to contribute alongside with us, I'd love to tell you more about the Blue Angels Fund. And and otherwise, if you just want to have some fun, check out the Derby uh, and watch and watch the the race and see what happens. And and we will we will be doing the same. Okay, so there you go. Um, that was the two housekeeping items. I've just kind of jotted down notes here from for this for this podcast about things that kind of hit my you know mind. Um, the first is I just got back from the KFC convention. Let me tell you a couple of things that I saw. 
that that brand has gone through a lot of transition and you know they've had a lot of uh, a lot of change and the first thing i noticed was all the new faces and it kind of a full convention attendance pretty much right i mean a couple of the franchisees or friends of mine I, I didn't see there but i'd say largely a lot of the franchisees are, have returned and come back and there are a lot of new people in the brands young people in the in in the KFC brand and it's been quite a transition it still feels like a you know, kind of uh, at the convention there, it still feels like a kind of a, a reunion of sorts. But there's been a, you know, a, a dramatic difference in what I'd consider to be kind of older franchisees who would kind of hobble down the convention aisle, who, you know, would be in their 60s, 70s and maybe early 80s. And now you see a lot of 30s and 40s there. Um, I'm really impressed. I mean, not just at the corporate level, but just in general, everyone attached to the convention, the, the quality of the people, the younger people who are a part of these conventions now and a part of these brands. It's pretty impressive. And I, you know, Heck, I'm 47 years old, and I kind of fall into the grouchy camp of, oh, the young whippersnappers, you know, they're doing things the wrong way and all these other things. And surely, you know, the younger the younger you are, the bigger age gap between young and old, the more you, 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 may, you may see that. But, I mean, I was just really impressed uh, and surprised a little bit at the quality of the, you know, of the, you know, the education, the motivation, the presentation of the young folks who are now a part of these brands. Uh, as seen through the KFC convention. So, uh, you know, it gave me a lot of hope that the industry ultimately is going to be placed in some really great hands, I mean, in 10 or 15 years from now. And I thought that was a real positive that I just wanted to mention and a big shout out. And I think it doesn't just go for the KFC convention. This stretches across all the industry is that, you know, when you feel down and out about our country or you feel down and out about anything, uh, politics or whatever the heck it might be, you know, maybe you will see like I do that there is a really fantastic glimmer of hope and light with today's young generation that's coming to work. They seem motivated and hardworking and ready to learn. So that's 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 good, and I saw it at KFC. You know, they went we, they went about telling a little bit of the story of how back like you know five years ago they were five or six years ago KFC was trying to get into a turnaround, right? And so this is kind of a similar turnaround story that you would see in any major brand, right? First, you got to stop the you know you got to stop the hemorrhaging in sales and the closed stores. Uh, which, you know, KFC did. And then you've got to, you know, create a little bit of success in your marketing program to be able to give you some time to then test, you know, to have a rob- to build a robust future marketing program and test new products and, and new advertising campaigns. And so that resulted in KFC and with other brands too. When you go through a turnaround, you've got to get sales growth. And they've had like six years, I believe. I mean, I might be wrong on that, but I believe six years of same store sales growth consecutively now. So you bring, you know, so you stem the tide of, of declining sales and store closures. You know, you maybe you get a little bit of advertising support and you get a little bit of of, of upswing that gives you time, whether it's six months, nine months, a year to de, you know to develop a robust testing platform for new promotions and new advertising and new products. You know, you start working on that, the, certainly on operations. You know, usually at this stage, you start simplifying operations and focusing on what you're doing well. And sales start to grow a little bit, right? And as they start to grow, then you work on fixing your margin problem. And at KFC, this is just, you know, kind of an anecdotal comment. But, you know, their margins in the last couple of years, some of it's COVID related, sure. But their margins are up, you know, three to 400 basis points over the last couple of years. And so, you know, as you get those initial stages of a turnaround in place, the next thing you do is you focus on your margins and you focus on, 
on producing, you know, products, uh, you know, that are hot and fresh and ready. You try to bring down, you kind of try to phase out products that aren't being, you know, successful. Um, you, you try to skinny your menu and that's a constant battle, right? Because a lot of the marketing people want to have a real big expansive menu that's really complicated that no one likes. And uh, it, n- n- not just the customer, but also, you know, the prep work in the back of the house and cooking. It's difficult to, to handle operationally. But you, but you simplify, you improve, and you get your margins up. And KFC was able to do this. And then, and then I think you start tackling kind of some, you know, remodeling uh, of your assets. And a lot, of, a lot of brands need to be doing this now, right? You're coming out of the pandemic, even though profitability this year in 2022 are, is kind of starting to struggle across many brands. You know, in KFC's case, they've got probably somewhere between 70 and 80 percent of their stores are American Showman image, which is a new image that, that's kind of new and fresh and clean. And, and, uh, and it's so that you start remodeling your stores and then you start looking at doing, you know, new unit growth. And KFC grew, you know, grew a little bit in store unit count in 2021. They're still not where some of the larger brands are from a new unit development perspective, but maybe 2022 will will get there. And then as all of this turnaround happens, you typically start seeing M&A happen in the brand, right? So, so you know, you're going to see some early adopters in everything, like whether it's Bitcoin and Dogecoin or whatever in the heck it is, you'll see some people who jump in at the forefront of a rally of any kind of asset and want to get in at a low price and they, you know, and they want to buy and hold and fix. And so you saw that from the M&A standpoint in, in KFC. And, and, and again, this is not just a KFC discussion. This is kind of a broad perspective of any franchise restaurant brand that I've really ever seen. Um, but, but you get some that come in early. But then, you know, you start creating the story and the story of sales growth, margin improvement, remodels, annual unit growth of development, you know, usually, usually what happens is you get like into the second or third phase of that is that when some of the lenders start jumping on board that may not have wanted to lend to a brand five or four or three years ago, they start opening their purses a little bit. They start offering, you know, decent, decent loans at decent rates at decent lease adjusted leverage calculations. They start offering reasonable, you know, kind of um, development lines of credit. And you start getting kind of capital, debt capital infused in the brand that enables these these uh, remodels and these new units to be built, but also even more importantly, it enables the M&A to happen kind of at a more robust level. And sometime along that growth curve, you start seeing other types of buyers jump into a brand or a system. And you see typically kind of, you know, maybe as the prices increase, you start seeing some of the legacy franchisees who are lower in unit count or they're tired, start to, you know, just naturally sell their companies. And that's kind of what happened for KFC in 2021. One, uh, they had a big, you know, a lot of stores changed hands. I was counting up the number of stores that ch- changed hands and the amount that we represented. And we did a little less, but right at half the overall stores in the KFC system in 2021 that were sold. We were the sell side uh, M&A advisor for that, which is really cool, man. I'm, I'm honored by that. But that's another stage that you, you kind of start to see. And, uh, and, and, and in this particular brand and in others, the consolidation usually produces larger and younger franchisees that want to grow and that think of the business a little differently. Now, time will tell whether or not that strategy, you know, I mean, there's an end game to that strategy. And if you're a, you know, any franchisee or really a franchisor and you're listening to this, like it's a circle and it's a cycle. And I've been around this thing long enough to know you don't stay positive for long, right? So forever, it, it, it ebbs and flows. So, you, you know, you start with the turnaround that I just described, 
but then you end up like, you know, at some point in time, you end up getting fat and happy. Sales don't grow any more. There's maybe extra, um, you know, kind of macroeconomic things that happen to the business, i.e. inflation or high gas prices or wars, you know, the, you know, interest rates going up, all these things that are actually starting to happen in 2022. Some, you know, so, so you have these external factors that can change the direction and momentum of a brand, right, that has gone through a turnaround. I'm not saying it's going to happen at KFC or anywhere else, but that's, that's one of the fears, one of the external factors. And then internally, you start getting a little fat and happy too, right? You, you kind of, you start resting on your laurels a little bit. You start maybe believing the Kool-Aid that you're drinking, you know, you know right? So um, these things kind of start to maybe let your guard down. Let me give you an example of my beloved Kentucky Wildcats who go into the NCAA tournament and get popped by the Jersey City, St. Peter, St. Peter's, I think they're the Peacocks, right? In the NCAA tournament first round, right? You go waltzing into the to tournament as a two seed thinking you're big and bad and you get popped because you're not ready. Um, and, and you're, you know, and you kind of let your guard down thinking and looking towards the next, the next thing or thinking that if you keep doing the same thing over and over again, you'll continue to win, right? Which is not true. You've got to change for the situation. You can't be thrown as going even deeper. You can't keep throwing the ball inside and uh, and shooting long two point jump shots if everybody else who you're playing spreads the floor with one center in the middle and four guards on the outside shooting threes for analytics reasons. Right? That's over time. That strategy is going to lose you ball games. So it's the same kind of thing with brands, right? They let down their guard. They continue doing the same thing that got them there without realizing they need to continue to adapt. And those are the t- and and then and then um, and then typically there's there's uh, then the cycle starts to repeat itself, right? Sales decline, management gets fired, people try to discount their products, and you know, like so, all of a sudden a burger gets to be ninety nine cents on a menu to try to win customers back, and that ends up you know kind of dropping profitability to a really bad place. Then there's no money in the brand to finance acquisitions, remodels, or new unit growth, and franchisees are really struggling and need help with workouts or bankruptcies, right? And then, um, and then the cycle kind of, re- re- you know, repeats its, you know, oh, you, you abandon new product uh, kind of news because, for value because you're desperate to get sales up each quarter for your investors. And then the whole cycle starts to repeat itself again. So let's hope that that back half doesn't happen here for any of the brands that, that you and I know and love. But I uh, thought I'd talk about that a little bit. All right. So a couple of other things today. Um, I just have a note here talking about concern for prices. Yeah. So we're looking at uh, what we just had one interest rate increase, I think, like in, in March here. And, and to me, it seems like or at least I hear kind of read about it, that there could be as many as six more interest rate increases expected this year. So rates are rates are starting to move up now. And if you're trying to finance an acquisition or you're trying to borrow money, um, you're going to start seeing it immediately between the bit, the, the difference between uh, variable rate financing and fixed rate financing at your lender, right? There's a big gap between the two now that maybe didn't exist this time last year. And it's because of the basically the baked in interest rate increasing environment that we're, we're going to be going into. And that makes a difference. I mean, it makes a difference on the real estate side. It makes a difference on the business side. The method of financing will 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 somewhat change. The the terms will somewhat change. 
uh, the amounts that people have to pay for money are going to increase, and, and that'll probably have a mitigating effect of some kind on valuations in our space for the next six to nine, 12 months, you know, maybe beyond. And, you know, we've basically been in a mild inflationary or even deflationary environment for a long time now with historically low rates for a way, way long time. And so uh, we're going to see what happens over the next several years as rates come up to try to combat inflation and kind of kind of put a tight lid on money. But my, my view is that, I mean, healthy businesses will be able to get financed, it, but it's going to bring it's going to bring, you know, cash flows down. Um, so multiples are probably going to come down a little bit. And, you know, anytime you have a tightening in credit. Uh, you're you're going to have a, a race to the top, and the brands that are the most successful are going to be the ones that get financed, and the ones that aren't, um, you know, and that have and that have kind of mediocre to, to below average results are going to not be able to find that capital as easily. I just got off the phone with a with a franchisee, uh, not a Yum franchisee, someone in another brand, just today, and he said. You know, just and this was interesting characterization because I don't think it affects everyone this way. But this guy particularly owns about a forty-unit business, sixty million in sales. You know, probably let's see, sixty million in sales at a twenty percent pre-GNA EBITDA margin is twelve million dollars. Probably has like three million in rent. You know, maybe four million in rent. So he's got an eight million dollar four-wall EBITDA business, right? Not assuming any real estate. So this is a pretty good size franchisee of two brands. Pretty solid business, high AUVs, you know, has and, and, and spread out across a couple of states. My point in saying all that is just to give you a perspective of it's not just like one little hillbilly in the middle of nowhere making this comment. But he told me today, he said, you know, December, my uh, profit was in half. December 2021. In January, February, I've, were maybe the first two months I've ever operated in 20 years where I actually didn't make money. And I said, well, why? I mean, I know the reasons why, but but he, he said, you know, of course, Omicron weather was a big deal. Obviously, in many parts of the country, weather was really rough in January and February. It's been, like I said at the beginning of this podcast, a brutal winter. I know you have no sympathy for me, um, but, uh, and oh, by the way, as, as you know, I was talking about the Blue Angels Fund. I'm hearing the Blue Angels flying over me right now here in uh, in Gulf Breeze, Florida. So they're doing they're doing practice routines, which is which is kind of cool. I don't I don't think you can hear it, but uh, you know, the other the other thing, but Omicron weather and then the inflation impact. You know, when when January inflation hit eight percent over last year, just an incredible number. He tells me March is better in sales, not back to what March was last year. And then kind of the commentary is that hopes, you know, that April and in May are, you know, are going to continue to to make progress, but that probably uh, industry-wide positive comps in a normal environment probably are not going to be easily achieved in most brands until Q2, when you kind of started to see the rollover impact from COVID start to subside last year. So, uh, you know, but 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 then again, layered on top of that, we've now got high gas prices, right? And $4 gas prices typically cut into the demand at QSR. I've never really understood that. I mean, I mean, intuitively, I get it. I guess the idea is, if you can just picture this, instead of buying a $7 or heck anymore with inflation being so high, you can't get a number five meal at whatever place for $7. You got to pay like $9, right? So you must try to trade from the $9 meal either to go into a convenience store and getting the 99 cent hot dog and putting relish on it and then getting the 79 cent big gulp, or you're making your tuna fish sandwiches at home, peanut butter and jelly sandwiches at home where you go. But whatever the, whatever the kind of the visual of it, when you see higher gas prices, you typically see lower QSR sales. So it may mean that I don't know what'll happen in terms of how quickly the turnaround will happen. Um, 
I think we do have, you know, M&A is typically the, the, the tip of the spear, man. And so like what we see in M&A activity typically kind of portends what's going to happen in the near term future. But, you know, and so, I mean, at this time, I'm kind of like, you know, so I would characterize our business as as being I mean, we still have a lot of assignments, but a lot of them are holdover assignments from 2021 that still haven't closed. Or they're in like two or three brands that have bucked the trend and are still producing great sales and profit over last year with a lot of upside. And those two or three brands are, are bucking the national trend for QSR, and they're still getting incredible amounts of financing. So those are kind of like the types of deals we're doing now, right? And, in, and but, but, but I would say that the supply of people that we typically see who are looking to sell is lower than it's been in the last few years, not including like when the pandemic initially hit, right? When that happened, everyone kind of paused everything they did thinking it was Armageddon. But so like, I I mean, so I think the supply is pretty low right now. A couple of things I'd say, uh, you know, Carl Icahn came out yesterday, I think, and said that he says that that he says the chance of a long-term recession or worse is very high. I hope he's wrong. He talked about the two sectors, I think, in, in the article I read being, you know, the ones to stay away from are commercial real estate and malls, which I thought were interesting. There has been a big appreciation in real estate. It can't last forever. And so uh, it is also my view that real estate is going to be dropping in valuation unless you're, you know, in, in certain collect, you know, select markets and certain situations where supply and demand are different than what's going to happen now. Nationally, you're going to expect a squeeze anytime you see interest rate increases. Uh, things like refinancings and purchases are just going to start are going to start constricting a little bit. Now, if there are less sellers that are on the market now, like in for example, like in any given spring, you know, if we're talking to 20 clients about selling their company, and now we're only talking. I mean, that, these are just sample numbers. This isn't it. This is not exact, right? Or not actually what's happening in our company. But if you're talking to 20 sellers typically, and you know, 10 of them become clients in a typical spring period, and now you're only talking to 10, and only five are going to become clients, what you, t- you know, you have, you have low supply. I mean, so supply is probably cut in half this spring, right? But demand hasn't cut in half. So, you know, on a couple of assignments we have seen, there's been a lot of interest, there's been a lot of interest. So there is a little bit of contrarian thinking in that if you have a business that hasn't performed poorly in the first quarter, or it's coming back a little bit, and you can make a case that it was just a temporary blip because of Omicron, and which is reasonable if it is coming back quickly, then you might say, hey, you know, since there's less supply in the market and, and the demand has come down a little bit too, but not in half, you know the, the the market is 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 probably still pretty good to get the high to, to get high prices because of, because of, of of the limited supply. So we'll see. You know the the other thing I would say for 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 M and A transactions, and this is something for people who are buying things and for people who are just operating, like the inflation's terribly high, and and we've been raising our prices across the industry. And again, like I'm in awe that people are still paying whatever it is, 10 or $11, $12 sometimes, just to get a fast food number something meal. Like, I don't know, where is the top top end of it where people just put their hands in the air and say, I can't afford to, you know, I don't want to pay this anymore. It's not worth it to me. But, but you know, prices don't really ever come down, do they? Right? And so this inflation thing is a pretty sneaky thing. Like, everyone is raising their prices and some of this inflation will start to mitigate. I don't know when it'll happen, but it will. It'll turn around. You know, I don't know. It's six months, six years. Who the heck knows? But when it does, 
you know, in the short term, there will be a window at some point in time for, for businesses that can keep their sales strong. They're going to be, their profits are going to crush it and they're going to make tons of money. You know, if, I'm just looking at like, as if labor starts to deflate and if down the road at some point in time, food costs turn around, I mean, you could be in a situation where you're making, you know, you have like 15% margins and all of a sudden your margins go up to 22 or 23% if you can weather the storm in the meantime. So, I mean, be thinking a little bit about that if you operate, if you're a something, someone's going to buy something, um, you know, be, be, be thinking about that positive upside, uh, you, you know, potential at some point down the road. And I would say this, an example for you might be the Wingstop brand. You know, the Wingstop brand is so incredibly hitched to wing prices. And, you know, they, they can only raise the prices so high when wings go so high. But think about how much, if you just check historically, wing prices have varied. And this is not like pandemic related. This is just over the last 20 years. Wing prices fluctuate a lot. And in the Wingstop brand, you know, that the franchisees will just kind of say, yeah, you know, you raise prices to what you, people can afford to pay, um, not to lose demand. And then you just kind of ride the wave of increasing and decreasing, you know, wing prices. Some years you make a lot of money and some years you don't. And, uh, and, and so maybe, and so maybe that, that logic and that thinking can be applied a little bit to, to the broad QSR industry that, um, you know, as these prices have gone up to, to react to increased expenses that may be somewhat temporary and not here forever. A couple of uh, other notes that I'll make is that I was convinced and have been convinced for the last, uh, let's call it what? Six, nine months, if you're listening to the podcast, that there was going to be a big a time when casual diners and fast casual companies start hitting the market, you know, because there's just been like two and a half years where they couldn't sell. And so they're just sitting there. A lot of them are in distress with bank covenants and things and their landlords and the franchisors, but they're just sitting there trying to operate and kind of get sales built up back to where they were. And my thinking always had been and was that, uh, that they would, you know, come out in a big, you know, kind of like in a big flush of selling in, in the first half of 2022. But after seeing a couple hundred P&Ls for casual diners, I'd say a couple hundred, that sounds about right, maybe 150, somewhere in that range, right, of a couple, of, of several potential clients reaching out to us and asking us to do evaluation of their business. My collective viewpoint now is that uh, their P&Ls aren't strong enough still. And so, the, you know, I know I'm, I'm looking at a microcosm, not the entire industry, but probably enough data now to make the comment that the casual diners aren't doing very well still. So their sales are, you know, maybe back to normal, but the profits are, are way low. Um, you know, I mean, it's no surprise because of some of the inflation, because of some of the, the cost of labor, uh, you know, and some of the, you know, just kind of some of the other, you know, things that have that have been in place. But I don't know that I was right about that. I'm not sure that we're going to see a flood of casual dining and fast casual M&A this spring or this summer, unless it's distressed. Uh, I don't know that we're going to see healthy sellers sell as vigorously as I thought, because I think their P&Ls need more time to season. It may be another cycle. It may be another six to nine months, maybe another 12 to 18 months. I'm, I'm not sure. But stay tuned for that. And of course, I, you know, I could be wrong, but but that's my comment right now, having seen all these P&Ls. The other thing is, um, if you are operating stores in this time and you start to see marginal sales decreases and profits start to take a hit, 
you know, take the opportunity to make the hard decisions as an operator to close a couple of your locations that aren't profitable. Maybe they were propped up with COVID. Maybe you're able to, you know, keep them staffed. Maybe you're able to make decent money out of them. But, you know, as trends start to change, I would encourage all franchisees to be looking at their portfolio regularly and looking for ways to optimize it. And optimize it, I mean, just, you know, look at where your best managers are in your stores. Remember Pareto's rule that I always talk about, like 80% of your profits or 80% of your benefit comes from 20% of your inputs. So focus on fewer things and do fewer things really well. Focus on the huge profitability of fewer stores to you know and drive that forward. Don't be emotionally attached to locations that really aren't going to make it long-term or marginally profitable. If you're a 30 or 40 unit franchisee or more and you're listening to this, like ain't no shame in the game of like closing a store to relocate it or closing two stores because they're not profitable. Don't be emotionally attached to it in that way. I mean, you're here to make money, so uh, don't hold on to, to to bad investments. You know, now's the time to simplify and prune, especially if we're going to be in a recession, right? Clean things up and simplify them so you can streamline and focus on a tighter and cleaner business that can produce more profitability as you kind of turn the screws into the next year. I note again that automation must continue to make big advances. Let's continue to watch it leap forward. Capital is still everywhere. Stock market took a big hit, but it's back a little bit, right? I think Dow's, I'm just checking it here. Dow's like was in the $31,500, point range, you know, which was, you know, a pretty big drop. And then, you know, as of today, it looks like here we're like in the, yeah, 34 or five, which is 40, a little less than 4,500 on the S&P. I mean, so assets are still pretty full, right? Um, maybe that's because inflation doesn't hurt the stock market in many cases as badly um, as people would expect. But, but with all of the money invested and all the capital in the marketplace still, I think you're going to see a lot of movement and automation that needs that capital to, to kind of get the R&D out there to make, to make the progress and change. But our industry's got to, you know, it's got to continue to push for automation. I mean, I don't want the robots to take over the world, but but uh, I think that is one of the ways in which we're going to make a, a, you know, a big change in the profitability of these restaurants over the course of the next 18 to 24 to 36 to 48 months. So watch for that to happen, even as the inflationary impact of these businesses get 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 bigger. Big, you know, like folks like me and and you are going to start asking, okay, if I'm dealing with with ever decreasing margins, you know, this problem is becoming a bigger problem for me. How do I fix it? And I think automation is going to continue to be a a force to reckon with here. When we talk about the valuation cycle, you know, M&A typically flourishes. I I think I've said this before. When things are improving, it, it flourishes when things are really great. And it flourishes when things are really bad. But when you go from a transitionary marketplace of like really good to like only okay, I mean, just being really you know, like qualitative in what I'm saying, that's when typically any kind of asset class starts to, you know, uh, starts to kind of uh, wane a little bit, right? I mean, you're going to see it in the real estate market too, because you've got sellers who are not, are, are thinking they can still sell things for the prices that things were selling for last year. And you've got buyers who are on the are hitting the road and hitting the pavement and talk to the lenders 
and the, the, you know, the scrutinizing buyers are going to say, I can't borrow money the same way because your trends are not as good or the lending market has changed a little bit because inflation has come up and interest rates are rising. And so there's going to be what we call a bid-ask spread that's, that's going to grow a little bit over the next six to nine months, I'm pretty sure. In many cases, you're going to see sellers just decide not to sell their, their, their assets because they, they may recognize this if their company is indeed going through this type of a transition. You know, and other really wise sellers, like I always go against the grain wherever I can, right? Take the road less traveled, and that's made all the difference. Is that Robert Frost? I don't know, man. Some of you guys may, may know that. So, but anyway, take the road less traveled. And maybe you decide to sell a good company at a time when there's less, less supply. Or maybe you, you get to the point where you think things will be a lot worse in the next three to five years than they are now. And you look at the and you look at the overall situation and you say, hey, it was worth 104, whatever. Now it's worth 99 or 100, but it could be worth 85 or 90 in in a in in several years. Like, and my encouragement is let's not be so myopic that we forget how historically high things are still sitting. Like, I mean, you know, those same people whose businesses were worth 80 let's call it, or 70, five years ago, somehow seemed to forget that if they were going to take a 99 right now, even though it was at a 104 last year, that 99 is still way better than the 70 or 80 five years ago, right? And and if it's going to go back to 70 or 80 in three to five years, I mean, like, don't be so myopic and short-sighted to say, gee, I'm going to wait for it to continue to go to go back up to where it was. I mean, you know, don't don't be so don't be so brainwashed into thinking that that's going to happen. That's what you call irrational exuberance. I think about the time when I was like an eleven year old. I was at I was at a Catholic school. Um, I was broke, didn't have any money, and I bought. But but I got went to a fish fry, and I had like a two dollars, and I bought my first ever like one of those little fish fry you know lottery ticket kind of like peel off things right in the eighties. First time through, bam, fifty bucks. Now to an 11-year-old kid, man, who didn't have much, we only went to like McDonald's once a year on my, on my birthday because we didn't have any money. Um, and, and we'd usually get like plain biscuits for breakfast. And that was like the big event for the year for me in the 80s, right? So not, I don't want anyone feeling sorry for me, but it's just kind of the way it was, right? I don't remember it being particularly hard. It's just what it was. But I made that $50 off of that lottery ticket and I said, hot dog. And so what did I just go to, to do? I, I had the irrational exuberance to think I could keep winning, right? That everything I would do in the future would replicate what just happened in the past. And so I, I took that $50 and systematically continued to invest that in the, the darn pop-off lottery thing at the fish fry, and I lost it all the way to nothing. And that was a very valuable lesson for me as a you know, 10 or 11 year old boy. And that stuck with me my entire, like 36, 37 years afterwards. It's like, you know, like you, 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 just because something was, was awesome for you in the past and it was elevated in the past and it was substantial and valuable for the past doesn't mean you can do it again in the future. Especially if, you know, like if you're seeing a trend and thinking it's going to turn around when it's not going to in the short term. So I couldn't walk away from continuing to lose $2 at a time until I had nothing. And that's the same mentality that keeps kind of boneheaded sellers out of, out of selling things when the future doesn't look as bright as the present. They look too much at what happened last year 
and they look too much at there being like a five or seven or ten percent drop in some asset class, and they make the assessment ir- irrationally and erroneously that it's going to come back to where it was real quickly. When it doesn't, it's going to go back to the long-term trend of being down 30% of where it is now. It's just 10% below what it was eight months ago. So all that being said, don't think like an 11-year-old boy in a fish fry. <laughs> and instead, you know, you know, try to see things objectively. M&A is going, to, is going to probably be a little slow for the next six to nine months. There will be great deals that'll hit the market. Smart sellers will jump into the jump in because there'll be a lack of M&A activity and they're going to go get those high valuations. Buyers are going to have some opportunities. It's probably going to be a little bit light for you for the next foreseeable bit, but uh, be be expectant and ready for the unexpected, right? It's either going to get it's either going to maybe get worse and if it gets worse, you're going to be out there maybe potentially looking at opportunities that could that you could add on to your portfolio at uh, even if you weren't anticipating being a buyer, but now all of a sudden you're like, "Okay, well I'll buy, I'll add to my company at a decent valuation for the neighboring franchisee who needs to sell because of, you know, either they've gotten, you know, old in a bad market and they've tried to hold on and they and they can't anymore or maybe they're in financial disarray or the opposite happens, we hit this blip and things kind of even out. The wheat prices, I, you know, I heard a third of, of, of Ukraine and Russia, right? They produce a third of the wheat and a lot of the fertilizer in the world. So we're expecting maybe some potential global food shortages and some things like this. Maybe some of that stuff starts to ebb and we get a, a, a nice turnaround through the late summer and early spring and we're back into a, just a really strong, robust market again. I don't exactly know. But I just say hold on and to think of things objectively as much as you can. I hope you guys do great. Thanks for listening. And uh, next time we're gonna have a, we're gonna have kind of I'm gonna grab my team and we're gonna talk about a little M and A update and talk about the specific and individual deals and how they're performing. Um, and you'll be able to see kind of a little bit about how the marketplace is treating some of these acquisitions right now. So thanks for listening. Take care. Thanks so much for entering the boiler room today. You can find our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, and Spotify. If you like these podcasts, please listen, rate, and review. I also encourage you to visit our website at www.unbridledcapital.com for the best franchise M&A and financial resources in the industry. Our website includes webinars, podcasts, videos, white papers, and a list of our past M&A transactions. Please note that neither Rick Ormsby nor Unbridled Capital Advisors, LLC, give legal, financial, or tax advice. These podcasts represent opinions that have been prepared for informational purposes only. We expressly disclaim any and all liabilities that may be based on such information, errors therein, or omissions therefrom.